This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I know most of you, I think, but for those of you who don't know me, my name is Andrew Herman, and I'm the pastoral resident on staff here, uh, which basically just means I do random things. Uh, <laughs> this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 16, and uh, I was talking to Adam just before the service, and I was telling him when I picked Psalm 16, I have to be honest, I kind of felt like I was picking a softball. Like I thought I was picking one that would just be easy to knock out of the park. And I have never agonized over sermon preparation. I've never struggled with preparing a sermon for a passage as much as I struggled this week. So I think that's kind of God's sense of humor uh, getting me (laughs) on Psalm 16. But I'm excited to dive into this with you this morning. So if you'll open up to Psalm 16 uh, or open up the order of service on the website to follow along and listen now to the reading of God's word. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of God. Let's pray and ask him to bless the preaching of it this morning. Father, as we come before you and receive your word this morning, give us hearts that are ready to hear. Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see amazing things from your word, Lord. Guide us, shape our hearts, renew our minds, Lord, and help us to see the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of your son, Jesus, and to embrace him in joy this week. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, Psalm 16 begins with an inscription. If you look Back at the text there, it starts out with this inscription, a miktam of David. And I just wanted to note that real quick in case you're wondering about it. Um, Obviously, of David means it's related to David. Uh, But the word miktam is a word that most scholars think is just a technical musical term or a liturgical term. uh, Something they would have used to designate how they performed or used this psalm in temple worship in the Old Testament. But I just wanted to note an interesting thing I came across. Every psalm that starts with an inscription that calls it a miktam, whatever that means, uh, 
has a similar structure in the sense that it begins with some kind of difficulty, some kind of cry to God, and ends with a pronouncement of confidence and of hope in God. And so there is one scholar that I came across who suggested that the word miktam is connected to a word in Hebrew that means to hide or hiding. And so it, it might have a connection to this idea of hiding or finding refuge in God. Uh, just wanted to, to give you that little piece of information. Take it for what you will. But the poem starts out, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. What does the word refuge conjure up for you? What kind of image comes to mind when you think of refuge? For me, I kind of imagine like being caught in a big storm and finding a little hut or a tree or something to hide under. It's this idea of hiding yourself, of finding protection, of being preserved, of being cared for, comforted, of being secure. And so it starts out, the psalm starts out with a desperate cry for refuge, but I think before we even hear what the text is saying, I think we have something to learn from what the text isn't saying here. Psalm 16 doesn't give us a lot of context for why David was crying out to God. In some Psalms, if you flip over to Psalm 18, for example, if you're using a paper Bible, there's a really long inscription with a lot of information about what happened that prompted this Psalm. In some other Psalms, there's a lot of implied context within the Psalm itself. But in Psalm 16, there's no such context. David doesn't elaborate on why he's crying out to God. And I think what we need to learn from this, what the vagueness of this psalm can teach us, is that we can cry out to God for help, for preservation, for refuge in all kinds of circumstances and situations. I think oftentimes when we approach psalms like this, psalms that begin with a desperate cry for help, we think, okay, I'll keep that one in my pocket for when something really bad happens. Like, this is a psalm for when someone is dying or when I lost my job or when my family is falling apart or something really bad. But the vagueness, the lack of context here is a reminder to us that we need to call out to God for preservation at all times. Because the reality is that even, even though as middle-class Americans we tend to feel pretty secure, life is a vapor that vanishes in a moment. All of our best endeavors, all of our hopes and dreams can be thrown off course by factors that we have no control over, by things that we cannot possibly foresee. All of the comfort and security that we build up in our lives can be taken away in a heartbeat. And maybe present circumstances have convinced you of that a little bit. Maybe God has been using some of the unsettled chaos of our world right now to remind you of just how little control you have, of just how unstable human life and human endeavors are. Maybe you're worried about your health or you're worried about the health of someone you know. Maybe you're worried about the economic downturn that might come as a result of what we've had to do. Maybe you're worried or angry or frustrated at the injustice that we see in our world. Or maybe you're anxious and frustrated at the destruction we see in rioting and protests around the country. Whatever it is, wherever you fall politically on any of these issues, if nothing else, these times are a poignant reminder from God that we have no control. <laughs> that the world is chaotic and unstable 
and that however secure and comfortable you feel, it can all change in a moment. And when we feel that kind of helplessness, when we begin to feel just how out of control the world is, how unstable the world is, how little we can control our own fate, that's when we can pray the prayer of Psalm 16. That's when we're ready to cry out to God, preserve me, God, for in you I take refuge. And it's worth noting, too, that the chaos, the fallenness of the world isn't just out there either. It's also in us, right? We don't just need preservation from the world around us, but we need preservation from our own hearts. The same sin that causes injustice, the same sin that causes anger and hatred and division and chaos is the sin that causes me to be selfish and prideful. It's the sin that causes you to be short with your wife or your kids. We have the same sin in us, and so we need preservation not just from the world around us, but from ourselves. And so Psalm 16, when you feel that helplessness, when you feel that defenselessness, Psalm 16 is here to show you how to turn to God for refuge and preservation. Psalm 16 wants to convince you that those who take refuge in God have an everlasting hope. That those who take refuge in God have, as verse 6 says, a beautiful inheritance. It wants to convince you that we can't hope in anything other than God. We can't find security, comfort, or protection in anything or anyone else. And so, as we look at Psalm 16, there's two main sections, kind of two movements here that we're going to follow. In verses 2 through 8, it shows us the way to take refuge in God, the way to receive that inheritance and that hope. And in verses 9 through 11, it shows us the beauty of that inheritance, the beauty of the hope we have when we take refuge in God. So let's look at verses 2 through 8 and the way to take refuge in God. How, what does it look like? What does it mean to take refuge in God, to be preserved by God, to hope in him? Well, in verse 2, the psalmist says, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. In verses 5 through 6, these are some key verses here. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The language that David is using here is language that harkens back to the Old Testament, earlier in the Old Testament, rather. David is referencing the inheritance of the land that the nation of Israel received in the book of Joshua. So, little Old Testament lesson. Feeling a couple of raindrops, nice. A little Old Testament lesson. Uh, the nation of Israel, when God led them out of Egypt... He brought them into the promised land, and there were 12 tribes of the people of Israel. And he gave each tribe an allotment, an inheritance. And every tribe got a portion of land kind of proportional to their size as a tribe, except for one. And the tribe that received no inheritance was the Levites. Now, the Levites had a special task from God. They were designated as the guardians of the temple. They were designated as the ones who would offer up sacrifices for the people, who would keep the temple pure and clean. In essence, they were guardians of God's presence among his people. Because the temple is where God was uniquely present. And so the Levites had this unique responsibility, and God said to them multiple times, here I'm reading from Ezekiel 44, This shall be their inheritance, 
I am their inheritance. And you shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. The Levites got no land, which was a big deal back then. If you think about it, at that time in Israel, pretty much everyone was a rancher or a farmer. Having land was the way you sustained yourself and your family. Having land was the way you identified yourself. Your land was identified with your tribe, with your clan. It was passed down through generations. Land was extremely significant to the people of Israel. But the tribe of Levi got no land. Instead, they got God himself as their inheritance. They received God's special presence with them as their portion. And David here is using similar language to what we see talking about the Levites in other parts of the Old Testament. He's saying, God, you are my portion. You are my inheritance. That when he says the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, he's talking about boundary lines, lines that denote boundaries of land allotments. But David isn't a Levite. David comes from the tribe of Judah. He's an ancestor of Jesus. He was not part of this priestly group. He wasn't going to leave his land and go work in the temple as a priest. So what inheritance is David talking about? What does he mean that God is his portion? What does he mean that he's chosen God as his inheritance rather than anything else? Well, the Lord Jesus is in many ways represented by David and he, he made a similar choice and a similar declaration in his ministry in the New Testament. In many ways, we can look at this prayer as coming from Jesus. And if you'll recall the story in the New Testament of when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world. He offered him riches and power, pretty much anything you could want. But the Lord Jesus rebuked him because he had an inheritance that was from God. The Lord Jesus didn't want the kingdoms of the earth because he had a kingdom of heaven that he would earn by suffering and dying for his people. And the inheritance that Jesus earned by being obedient to God unto death, by suffering and dying on the cross and by rising again, the inheritance that Jesus earned for himself is the same inheritance that David is talking about here. It's the inheritance that Jesus earned for all who trust in him, that they would be heirs of the kingdom of heaven. Titus 3, 4 through 7 says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When Jesus was obedient to God unto the point of death, he earned the right to be the king of heaven, the right to eternal life in the presence of God for all who would trust in him. And so what David is talking about, this beautiful inheritance, to have God as his portion, what he's talking about is all who trust in Christ, in the promised King of God, have the promise of the eternal presence of God. All who trust in Jesus and the work he did to earn this inheritance receive the eternal presence of God forever. Receive the right to dwell with the Creator, the Almighty, the Holy One, 
for all time. And so David is looking to this hope, this inheritance that Jesus has earned, to dwell with God forever. And he's saying, I have no good apart from this. This is my chosen inheritance. I will not hope in anything else. This is the one thing I hope in. There's an exclusiveness to this hope. The way to this inheritance is to take refuge in Jesus, to trust in him, to look to the work that he has done. But it also includes turning away from any other hope, from any other inheritance. If you think about taking refuge in Jesus, like taking refuge in a fortress, imagine a big medieval castle for a second, just the most hulking, full, like multi-ton stones. You know, nothing's getting through there. But if you get in that fortress and then leave it every 30 minutes to go check out the fortress down the road, it's not going to be very useful to you, right? Your enemy can just pick you off right when you step outside. In the same way, when we take refuge in Jesus, when we put our hope in him, we're putting our hope in him to the exclusion of all other hopes. That's why David says in verse 4, referring to people who follow false gods, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He's saying, I will not look to any other God for my hope, to any other source of joy, of comfort, of security. I take refuge in God and his promises alone. Now, we might think that that part's easy for us because not many of us have people running around trying to convince us to worship Baal or anything like that, right? You might have a Mormon missionary show up at your door like once a year and you just turn them away and you say, all right, I did it. But the reality is, that our culture is full of idols. Our culture is full of other gods that we are tempted to hope. And we might laugh at the Israelites when we see in the Old Testament how quick they were to run to other gods. But the reality is we do the same thing over and over again. We might not worship Baal or Molech, but we are quick to put our hope to take refuge in all kinds of idols that our culture has. In our businesses and our jobs, in our parenting skills and having successful children. Maybe with the election year coming up, a big one for a lot of us is in politics. We think we can inherit the kingdom of heaven if we can just get the right candidate in office, right? Or if we can just, for my libertarian friends, reduce the government small enough, then we'll inherit the kingdom of heaven. We run after other gods all the time. Imagine for a moment with me That when you got home after church today, you get a call from this number you don't know, and it's a lawyer. And he tells you that you have this crazy rich great uncle that you've never heard of who died and left you an inheritance. He left you $100 million. Could you imagine what you would do with $100 million? I have no idea what I would do. Imagine, though, you get this phone call. A $100 million inheritance from this great uncle you've never met. No strings attached, only one condition. You have to sign a legal document saying you can't inherit anything else. You're not eligible to receive any other inheritance. That's the only condition for getting $100 million. Show of hands, how many of you would do that? How many of you would say yes? I would say yes. I mean, unless you happen to have another uncle who's like a billionaire. (laughs) I would say yes. The reality is the inheritance that we have in Christ, the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven, that we get simply by taking refuge in Jesus and hoping in him is far more valuable than any amount of money. 
And yet we are so slow to abandon our other hopes. We are so slow to take refuge in Jesus alone, to hope in God alone, to say, I have no good apart from you. It's crazy when you think about it, but our hearts are so quick to wander. But the good news is that when we take refuge in Christ, when we look to him as our hope and our inheritance, we have a promise that he will guide us and strengthen us along the way. If you look at verse 7 and verse 8, it says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. The Lord guides us and firms us up. He makes us unable to be moved when we trust in him. And so even though in our own strength, we would probably run off to other gods in a heartbeat, when we call out to God to preserve us and we take refuge in what Christ has done, he will preserve us. Romans 8 says that you have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What's so important about that, what's so amazing about that, is that when we turn to Christ, we receive a spirit. We receive the spirit of God. Paul here calls it the spirit of adoption that enables us to cry out to God for help and that assures us that we belong to God even when we have not acted like it. We receive the promise of God's Holy Spirit and by his spirit, God gives us counsel. He teaches us through his word. A lot of times people want to separate the work of the Holy Spirit and the scripture but the Holy Spirit works through the scripture. He gives us counsel through his word. He makes us firm in the hope that we have in Jesus. And one other way that the spirit strengthens us real quick, I wish we could spend a lot more time on this, but I'll move through it quickly. One other way the spirit strengthens us is hinted at in verse three. We kind of skipped over that earlier, but it says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. One of the means, outside of the word, outside of prayer, that the Spirit uses to strengthen us in our hope, to keep us firm, is the people of God. God's Spirit is specially present with his people. In Ephesians, Paul describes as a temple being built together as a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, talking about the church, Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? When we come together as the church, God is uniquely present with us, and we get a foretaste of the inheritance that is waiting for us eternally. We get a foretaste of the presence of God in a way that we can't get on our own. A lot of times we, in evangelicalism, tend to think of the daily quiet time as like the pinnacle of spirituality. And I, I distinctly remember when I was in a high school youth group, Someone asked one of our leaders the question, like, well, if you had to choose between reading your Bible at home and going to church, which would you choose? That's a, that's a silly question. You don't have to choose, obviously. But he said, well, obviously reading my Bible. My daily quiet time is the most important thing to me. But I think that represented priorities that were backwards. The Spirit is uniquely present with the people of God as we come together in a way that is completely unique. 
This is true of corporate worship, what we're doing right now together. But it's also true of the fellowship and encouragement we offer one another. A lot of times we read the book of Acts. We read about the church in Acts 2 and Acts chapter 4. And we're so amazed, right, at the encouragement they had, how they rejoiced together at the gospel, the fellowship they had, the, the boldness they had. And we say, why isn't church like that? Why don't we have that kind of fellowship, that kind of encouragement? And then we leave service, and someone asks us to come over for dinner, and we say, oh, no, I'm busy, right? We don't prioritize that fellowship. We don't prioritize the encouragement and the building up of the body. And so one of the ways that the Spirit strengthens us in this hope in this inheritance of God's presence, is by causing us to delight more and more in the people of God. So that's the way to the inheritance. The way to the hope that lasts is by trusting in Christ and what he has done and trusting even that he will help us to endure and strengthen us as we wait for the inheritance in its fullness. But now that might leave you wondering... Okay, we've talked about the way to the inheritance. We've talked about the need to trust in Jesus, to be built up by his spirit. But maybe we haven't built a very compelling case yet for why this inheritance is really worth hoping in above all other hopes. What What is the goodness? What makes the presence of God so important? Why is that the thing I should desire above all other things? Why is that my highest good? So in verses 9 through 11, I hope we will answer that question. Verses 9 through 11, we see the beauty of the inheritance. David says here, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. These last few verses, this last section of the psalm is referenced twice in the book of Acts by the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. And both of them, when referencing it, say explicitly that David was speaking prophetically of Jesus. When he speaks of the the avoiding death, when he says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, Sheol in the Old Testament represents the place of the grave. It represents death. Uh, That word that's translated corruption could also be translated the pit darkness, gloom, misery. When David says that, he is prophetically speaking first and foremost of Jesus, who not only died to reconcile us to God, but rose again to inherit the kingdom that we will inherit with him, who defeated death forever. He is the true Holy One of God. And because he defeated death, All who trust in him have a promise that these verses apply to us too. That even though we may die in the body, God will not abandon our soul to Sheol. He will not let us see corruption. There is a promise of resurrection, of an eternal hope, of an eternal life in the presence of God. We considered earlier the fleeting nature of life, right? How quickly things can end, how radically your plans, your hopes can be shaken and destroyed. But this is a promise, this is a hope that cannot be shaken, that cannot be destroyed. But maybe you're still thinking, okay, 
So I get to live forever. That's good. But what, what does it mean to be in God's presence? Why is that so great? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had something in life that you just felt like you were made to do? Maybe some kids in here, if I've lost some of the kids, you might, ha- you might have something that this makes you think of too, right? Something that you love to do. What do you love to do? What, when you do it, it just feels natural, like you were made for it. Maybe when you were a kid, it was playing a sport, playing soccer or football. You're just playing that, right? And it just feels like that's what you were designed to do. When I was in high school, I played in some bands. And for me, that was just like, oh, this is what I'm made for. Maybe uh, you love teaching or you love being a parent or being a spouse. Whatever it feels like you were made to do, that thing that you love, how does it feel when you get to do it? It feels great, right? You just feel fulfilled. You feel happy. Although, unfortunately, too often, because we live in a fallen world, that feeling eventually fades away, right? Or it kind of dips in and out. Well, to be in the presence of God forever, to be with the creator of heaven and earth forever, is quite literally what you were made for. When God made Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, their highest good, what made the Garden of Eden paradise, wasn't that they didn't have jobs, It wasn't that they just got to hang out and do whatever they wanted all day. It wasn't that the fruit was delicious. It was that they were with God in his presence, unhindered, undivided, in the presence of the almighty God. But if you've read the book of Genesis, you know that sin separated them. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, they were cast out of the garden, cast away from God's presence. And we still today, as fallen sinful human beings, are separated from the presence of God because of sin. But the whole story of Scripture, the story of redemption, is that God is calling a people to come back into his presence. That's why in the Old Testament, when Israel had God's presence in the temple, the temple is described in garden language. It's designed like a garden. That's why the church in the New Testament is described as the temple of God's spirit, because he's calling a people back into his presence. And that's why in the book of Revelation, in the new heavens and the new earth, the city that represents God's people is a garden city. It's the new garden of Eden where we will be in the presence of the one who we were made to love and enjoy forever. One day when when God brings the end of all things, when the resurrection comes, we will do what we were made to do. All who have trusted in the Lord Jesus will be in the presence of our God. And it will be absolutely perfect there will be fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore i remember when i was when i was younger i used to ask people about heaven like oh am i going to be able to play video games there am i going to be able to you know do things i like to do is there going to be pizza is there going to be you know what am i what am i going to do in heaven and the reality is the bible doesn't tell us a lot about what what eternity will look like but the presence of god the full undivided, unbroken presence of God will be greater than the greatest thing you can imagine here on earth. It will be the most joyous, most wonderful, most amazing, awe-inspiring thing. And the thing is, if you've ever seen a a beautiful view that makes your jaw drop, if you've ever had a, a moment that just made you amazed or in wonder, 
that kind of fades off, right? Like the first time you move to Albuquerque, you see the sandias, it's amazing, and then you kind of get used to them. The glory of God will never wear off. It'll be like the first moment of amazement and wonder and joy for all eternity. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. An eternal weight of glory. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, for you, believer in Jesus, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Psalm 16 is calling us to place all of our hope in that inheritance, to take refuge in Christ and Christ alone and the amazing promise, the amazing inheritance that he has for us, the eternal presence of our God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, one of our teaching instructions, begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? What is the highest purpose of mankind? And the answer is, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is what you were made for. To glorify God and enjoy him in his presence forever. And this is the promise for all who take refuge in Christ today. So let's do that. Let's take refuge in him. Now pray with me. Father, thank you the great inheritance that you have given us in Jesus. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, our King, our Redeemer. Forgive us, Lord, for being so quick to turn to other hopes. Help us to take refuge in Christ alone, Lord, and to hope in your promise alone to make you our only good, God, and to make you our chosen portion forever. We thank you, God, for your kindness and mercy, and we long for the day that we will see you face to face, that we will be in your presence for all eternity. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. 